This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you're wondering why you've just heard several dozen people sing the words, happy birthday, dear light bulb, it's to celebrate the 100th birthday of the Centennial Light in Livermore, California fire station. And yes, this is an actual thing that happens and I find it adorable. But if you're wondering just how the hell the light bulb is still burning, you're not alone. As it turns out, the phrase, they just don't make things like they used to, isn't just something your grandparents would say and planned obsolescence can be a genuine problem. It all started with our 100 plus year old friend here, the light bulb. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about planned obsolescence and the right to repair. These two things go hand in hand. Is equipment planned to fail? And why can't we fix it when it does? So let me start by using an example that many of you can probably relate to, McDonald's. If you've ever been to a McDonald's and ordered one of their ice creams, you may have been told that the machine is broken. Now sure, machines break, but these ones were always down. The problem got so bad that you could even track which McDonald's were serving ice cream online. So why is it so hard to fix a soft serve machine? Well, enter the right to repair. These machines are advanced, but temperamental. When a machine breaks down, McDonald's had to call the manufacturer, Taylor, and have a certified technician brought out. Because these machines are so prone to failing, McDonald's spends a lot of money on service contracts with Taylor, which the company itself benefits from. Jeremy O'Sullivan, co-founder of food tech startup Kitsch said, "'It's a huge moneymaker to have a customer that's purposefully intentionally blind and unable to make very fundamental changes to their own equipment.' Sure, the stakes aren't very high on the surface. It's just some soft service ice cream. But the principle of the thing is pretty serious and the stakes are raised when say, we're talking about $500,000 fire equipment or a life-saving ventilator. If a manufacturer sells a product that often has trouble, doesn't allow their clients to repair it, then it's no wonder that things can go awry pretty quickly. So when did this start? And how do we stop it? One of the first more known examples of planned obsolescence started with the light bulb conspiracy. Now, the name of it sounds pretty strange and eerie that it almost has to be fake. A conspiracy thought up by people who wanted an excuse for why things just aren't made the way they used to be. And as a brief aside, light bulb terminology can actually be a bit confusing. Please know that for this portion, if I say lamp, I'm just referring to any device that generates heat, light, or other radiation, AKA what many of us consider different bulbs, not a literal table lamp. But this conspiracy really did happen back in the early 1900s. You see, around that time, the average span of a light bulb was about 2,500 hours. Just a few companies were controlling the market, such as General Electric in the United States. As the book, Lighting the Path to Profit explains, GE established a cartel as early as 1897 called the Incandescent Lamp Manufacturers Association, known as ILMA. 
GE was able to keep small companies weak under these ILMA agreements for a few years until ILMA members created the illusion of strength. Two of these members, F.S. Terry and B.G. Tremaine, set up the National Electric Lamp Company to make competition appear fierce, when in actuality, General Electric had about 75% of NELC stock. Since they controlled so much of the market, GE didn't feel the need to really strive for improvement. However, there was a lot of lamp development in Europe, leading to Australian electrochemist Carl Auer von Welsbach, sorry about that, developing a filament that was 60% more effective than GE's in 1898. Finally, GE seemed willing to pay attention. They established a research lab, purchased rights to a tungsten filament application, and their researchers were leading the way with efficiency once again by 1909. But it wasn't just GE that started paying attention, but the government as well. In 1911, the government sued GE for having power and control over the lamp market and inhibiting their foreign and domestic competition. The FTC had a file online about the impact and relevance of this case, referencing a book called The Electric Lamp Industry and makes mention of it. The author, it doesn't get any better than this, is named Arthur Aaron Bright. And I don't know why, but I just find it a little bit funny that an expert on light bulbs has the last name of Bright. Anyway, that that just made me giggle. There's no other reason for it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Moving on from my love of stupid puns though, nothing else really changed. In 1915, GE still controlled over 95% of lamp sales in the US, skirted around price fixing prohibitions and lowered lamp costs all while expanding their reach. Lighting the path to profit states that the cost of a standard 60 watt lamp went from 75 cents in 1912 to just 20 cents by 1929. For a time, promoting efficiency and low cost was the way, but it couldn't work forever. After the initial rise of light bulbs, people didn't need to purchase more. You only need so many light bulbs and with how long lasting they were, it was a while before someone had to buy more. There were just a few companies running things. In the US, it was General Electric as we've discussed, but other companies had their GE equivalent. NPR explained that by 1929, all these companies were actually starting to struggle with OSRAM, formerly known as Osram Licht AG, which is a German company, they were having a particularly bad year of sales. The head of Osram, William Meinhardt, decided to form the Phoebus Cartel in December, 1924. Phoebus comes from the Greek god of light, also known as Apollo. The cartel consisted of four representatives from leading light bulb manufacturer. There was Philips in the Netherlands, Compagnie des Lamps in France, General Electric in the US, and of course, Osram in Germany. Together, the four companies pledged that they would reduce the 2,500 hour lifespan of a life bulb to just 1,000 hours. According to alabrava.net, this was a trade-off to the cartel. They'd make 1,000 hour light bulbs more efficient and brighter, but because the lifespan was shorter, people would need to buy more of them. A documentary about planned obsolescence known as the light bulb conspiracy makes it sound like an eerie secret deal. They say that the humble light bulb became the first victim of planned obsolescence and state. Christmas Eve, 1924 was a special day. In a back room in Geneva, suit wearing men met to create a secret plan. They established the first worldwide cartel. 
Their goal was to control the production of light bulbs and to divide the world market between them. The cartel was called Phoebus. Other sources such as Lighting the Path to Profit book that I mentioned earlier, described these events a little bit differently. It stated that Osram actually wanted to move to establish a cartel years prior and working with Philips and six other Central European lamp makers, they formed the International Union for Regulating Prices of Incandescent Lamps in 1921. However, infighting led to a breakdown by February, 1924 and GE stepped in, lending Osram $1.5 million to help pursue its business plans. According to the book, GE never technically joined the Phoebus cartel because they already had scrutinizing eyes on them given the FTC's investigation. Instead, they just adjusted their existing agreements, bringing them in line with cartel operations and using language similar to the cartels for exchanging patent rights and technical information, limiting competition geographically and maintaining prices. So while GE wasn't technically a member, from the sound of things, in my opinion, they might as well have been. From here, the cartel appointed a group called the 1000 Hour Life Committee, dedicated to reducing the time an incandescent lamp could burn. And as ridiculous as that sounds, there are genuine cartel papers proving this, some of which are shown in the documentary itself. Bulb productions were carefully monitored and Phoebus would find members of the cartel if their monthly reports were off the mark. It only took two years for lifespans of bulbs to drop from 2,500 to below 1,500. A while later, by 1940, they had officially reached their goal. The standard life of light bulbs was 1,000 hours. But why did no one notice? And how come no one cared? When the sustainability of a light bulb drops more than 50%, wouldn't more people be upset? Industry is time and energy. Industry is light. Light keeps the wheels of industry turning during the day. Light makes it possible to change the often wasted hours of darkness into hours of useful production. Light helps make it better, helps make it cheaper, helps make it faster. It is light that steps up the American temple. Well, there are a few reasons why the general public may not have been concerned as presented in that documentary as well. First and foremost, global warming and sustainability weren't as much of a concern in the 20s and 30s. So having a finite amount of resources wasn't really at the forefront of people's minds at that time. And another example that isn't really brought up is cost. Light bulbs cost more when they first came out and then the price dropped as time went on. Perhaps the general public just assumed, oh, in order to make the light bulbs cheaper, they weren't lasting as long. Researching this also wouldn't have been as easy back then either. So there's really no concrete evidence though. That's just my personal suspicion. Patents for light bulbs that lasted 100,000 hours were filed in the coming years, but none reached the general market. Of course, the Phoebus cartel dissolved eventually. It was meant to last until the agreement became void in 1955, though it really started failing during World War II. While the Phoebus cartel is one of the first examples of planned obsolescence and an international cartel, it's far from the only example. In fact, the term planned obsolescence itself didn't even become common until the 1950s when the light bulb conspiracy had already ended. So then how has planned obsolescence entered into our modern day life? And is it ever justified? This is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. Apple has been, well, first of all, one's very fortunate if you get to work on just one of these. One of the most known modern examples of planned obsolescence is the iPhone. 
Over four years ago, a Reddit user named Techfire made a post about how iPhone batteries degrade over time. They suggested replacing the current battery with a new name brand one to make the phone last longer. Techfire's post was referenced later by NPR when they stated that Apple began responding to user complaints about their old batteries struggling to perform once their software was upgraded. And it seems practical. Old phones work with old software. New phones work with new software. However, these phones weren't that old. The models were from 2015 and 2016, and this article came out in late 2017. And we all know that a brand new iPhone has never been cheap. Now, John Poole, the founder of Primate Labs, said that Apple's approach was going to sow the seeds of planned obsolescence and quote, users may believe that slowdown is due to central processing unit performance instead of the battery performance. In essence, the argument was that Apple intentionally misled its consumers. It's not hard to find a variety of articles, even to this day, saying that phone companies want you to believe replacing your phone battery is difficult or even impossible. Insider argued that this is such a big deal because Apple wasn't just making updates, but purposely trying to draw more power than old batteries could handle. Apple's exact statement was as follows. Last year, we released a feature for iPhone 6, iPhone 6S, and iPhone SE to smooth out the instantaneous peaks only when needed to prevent the device from unexpectedly shutting down during these conditions. We've now extended that feature to iPhone 7 with iOS 11.2 and plan to add support for other products in the future. Now, many people saw this as an admission of guilt and a confirmation to the conspiracy theory that the older iPhone's performance suffers when new iPhones are released. The whole event earned itself the name Battery Gate. When Apple eventually settled this case for $500 million, which by the way, that's about $25 a person, Forbes contributor Vianne Vaught called it the wrong move and said that the public needed its way in court for planned obsolescence. Vought made the point that Americans seem overwarned and coddled by stupid warning labels, yet we don't have much recourse when it comes to planned obsolescence as the courts seem to treat it as just another business model. This has effectively created a lose-lose situation for customers. If you try to fix it yourself, then the warranty can be voided. Or if you go to Apple's Genius Bar, they might charge so much that you could just purchase a new product instead. The Wall Street Journal demonstrated just how extreme this problem could be back in August, 2021, when they brought a 2017 MacBook Pro to an independent repair shop. That shop stated that the cause of death was water damage and the shop could have it fixed in a day for $325. Yet when the Wall Street Journal had tried to take the laptop to the Apple store, Apple quoted them $999 and said it would take a week to fix. The Apple genius even told them it might just be better to buy a new one. It's pretty clear which choice Apple benefits from. In multiple cases, these independent repair shops were able to use old MacBook equipment, swap it out and charge a fraction of the cost and complete the work in a fraction of the time. Sure, the shops can't fix everything, but sometimes this is simply because Apple doesn't make them available. Restricting the sale of parts is something else Apple does. Of course, some Apple forums argue that this is because Apple ships out these products, they give you a loaner product in the meantime, and they have Apple certified technicians and fully certified for new parts. So that's the reason for the high cost too. And I suppose you get what you pay for really. Even so, while this massive price difference may make sense at times, Apple doesn't seem willing to have competition either. More on this though in the right to repair products later. In addition, when smartphones or tech fail so quickly, consumers just aren't getting what they pay for. Larry DiMatteo and Stefan Varkba wrote in the Cornell Journal of Law and Public Policy that planned obsolescence means purchasers can't use the price as a surrogate for quality or more minimally for the durability of products. In other words, price simply does not reflect quality. 
Forbes writer Vianney also cited one case from the mid 1980s that had me falling down a rabbit hole of planned obsolescence in cars. In this particular case, a class action suit was brought against Volkswagen for the defects in their oil systems. The plaintiffs at the time said that these systems caused excessive oil consumption, engine damage and failure and decreased their resale value. All because the valve stem seal was inferior and allowed oil to leak into the engine's combustion chamber. This case was dismissed, which seemed to set a dangerous precedent. As long as a product fails after warranty, there's nothing the courts can do. In more recent years, auto service websites have argued that Volkswagen cars are more notorious for planned obsolescence than any other car manufacturer. Carolina Mobile Auto Service said that electric cars are the next generation of it with batteries that cost $15,000 each. The Conservation also wrote an article in 2015 referring to Volkswagen as the tip of the destructive iceberg. In it, they discussed how Volkswagen had an environmental cheat software that would trick emissions tests, thereby allowing a car to pollute more than it appeared. This seemed to go beyond plan obsolescence and into what they refer as toxic innovation. However, yet again, this goes back decades. While earlier I said that the light bulb is one of the first concrete examples of planned obsolescence, others argue that this award actually goes to the car company, General Motors. The CEO, Alfred Sloan, has been credited for coming up with the idea around the mid 1920s. According to NPR, Sloan realized that they had to make people want things that they essentially didn't need, which led him to create promotional films praising their cars as the triumph of America. His goal was to tell the American public that buying one car a lifetime simply was not enough. Sloan referred to it as a dynamic obsolescence instead of planned. For Sloan, it wasn't necessarily about making sure products fail to force you to buy another, but to convince people they needed another in order to stay fashionable. This concept thrives in other industries too, like the printer industry. Microchips, light sensors, and batteries can all disable a cartridge long before the ink is actually used up. It's practically everywhere. Some examples are far less exploitative and can even benefit consumers like kids clothing. Many people won't really mind buying kids clothes that aren't built to last as long as they're cheap because kids ruin clothes easily and grow out of them quickly. Then again, the argument could also be made that paying a bit more money and making them more sustainable and long lasting can benefit us in the long run so we can reuse clothes and textiles and donate them as opposed to making waste. Howard Tolman, described by the BBC as a serial entrepreneur and CEO of a digital startup incubator, says that technology simply takes care of itself and will go obsolete on its own, whether someone likes it or not. Innovation, competition, and improvement in technology all play a role in that. Now, while this might be understandable for phones that are years old and dinosaur computers from the 90s, one company has found itself at the forefront of some of these conversations due to one important point. They won't allow their customers to fix their products. And that brings us to my next point. What if you want to make a product last? Well, before we jump into that next section and talk about John Deere himself, let's take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. Thanks to 7% inflation, everything costs a gazillion dollars right now. So it's a relief to find savings where you can, and you can find it with Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile is the first wireless company to sell online only, and their lack of overhead translates into serious savings for you. And when I say serious savings, I mean serious. Their plans start at just $15 a month, and all their plans come with unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data, all delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. With Mint Mobile, you can choose the amount of data that's right for you and stop paying for data you don't use. 
I've been using Mint Mobile now for a year and a half. Maybe we're getting close to two years at this point, And I have had zero problems. It's actually been kind of shocking. The bill is easy to control and maintain through their app and pay and upgrade or downgrade depending what I'm doing. And there's literally no issues ever. It's kind of shocking that it's so good. Like, why isn't everyone doing this? Anyway. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, make sure you go to mintmobile.com slash casket. That's mintmobile.com slash casket. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash casket. It seems like we've all been really focused on sleeping lately as well too, because no one is sleeping well. But no matter how many tinctures you might buy, nothing helps more than just getting a better mattress. That's why it's worth getting a purple mattress. Only purple mattresses have the GelFlex grid, which is a super stretchy, ultra squishy material that adapts and flexes around pressure points and doesn't retain heat. Might I add, doesn't retain heat. You sleep nice and cool on this thing all night. The GelFlex grid supports your back and legs, yet also cushions your shoulders, neck, and hips. Since switching to a purple mattress, I've noticed that Casper, which as you guys know, is a Samoyed who is an Arctic sledding dog. So he needs to maintain cool temperatures. He's been sleeping on the corner of the purple mattress with me. So I assume it most certainly keeps him cool as well, which makes me happy. And you can try your purple mattress risk-free with free returns and shipping. Financing is available too. So getting a great night's sleep starts with having a great mattress. So get a purple mattress. Make sure you go to purple.com slash casket and use code casket. For a limited time, you can get 10% off any order of $200 or more. That's purple.com slash casket, code casket for 10% off any order of $200 or more. That's purple.com slash casket, promo code casket, terms apply. The time, late spring, 1962. A group of well-known farmers from the wheat and rice belts of North America were ushered into the highly restricted John Deere Research and Engineering Center in Waterloo, Iowa. The purpose of their visit was to preview a brand new 121 horsepower tractor. Their first reaction, enthusiastic approval. The 5010 tractor is the one and only tractor which fulfills all their farming requirements. The simplicity of that first Model D appealed to me as a young man. I could do all the servicing and make the minor repairs myself. I kept cost records on The majority of voters in many states want the right to repair their items. They want information on the equipment and parts for the machine to be available. This is especially true for farm equipment, which is far more expensive than an iPhone and at times even vastly more costly than the cars we mentioned earlier. Senator Elizabeth Warren has helped bring this topic to the national stage as John Deere, a well-known manufacturer of farm equipment, has made this entire situation infuriating for their customers. Take Nebraskan farmer Kyle Schwarting, for example. According to the Maryland General Assembly testimony, his John Deere combine harvester malfunctioned and he wasn't able to fix it due to a software lock that only an authorized John Deere service technician could access. The harvest window was closing and if Kyle took it to a shop, he would have to pay thousands to load it onto a flatbed truck and take it to a dealership. No wonder farmers like Kyle want the right to repair their harvesters in an emergency. Kyle ultimately decided to take matters into his own hands and hack the software. The US Office of Copyright has sided with Kyle in the matter, but John Deere has literally attempted to argue that people like Kyle have no right to touch their equipment in this way. They've stated that these farmers simply use the equipment under quote, an implied license for the life of the vehicle to operate the vehicle. And this is absolute garbage for so many reasons. These farmers pay personal property taxes for the equipment, not John Deere. These combine harvesters can cost half a million dollars and farmers' livelihoods depend on them. 
So for John Deere to make it difficult to repair is even more consequential than just a phone. Even looking at the software running a John Deere tractor could give the company legal right to sue these farmers. The restrictions are just that severe. Back in 2018, Wired described how the deal passing on behalf of the right to repair was toothless and potentially more harmful than helpful. For example, even though the Farm Bureau and equipment dealers agreed that these dealers needed to provide access to service manuals, product guides, onboard diagnostics, and other information, it still wasn't enough. Without the parts and diagnostic software, farmers still can't repair their own equipment and will have to rely on a manufacturer or dealer. The restrictions were still massive as to what farmers could do, such as reprogramming electrical control units. For cars, this is a basic necessity, but for farmers, this power continued to reside in the hands of others. Wired also wrote that this too could be seen as a move towards planned obsolescence. After all, without being able to modify the systems, it means that farmers can't upgrade tractors to meet new or emerging emissions requirements, which is practically forcing them to buy new equipment. To put it plain and simple, the deal that emerged in 2018 did little to assist anyone. Some might argue that it actually made things more difficult because it seemed to allow the California Farm Bureau to throw their hands in the air and say they did their job when the deal was half-baked at best. Saying, sure, you can change some things without giving anyone access to the tools to do so is not only frustrating, but disingenuous. Thankfully, the right to repair movement has started gaining traction anyway, and more and more people seem to see the potential and sustainable benefits. The pandemic itself has helped spur this on due to the increasing need for life-saving medical devices and you know, then the need to keep them working. The New York Times wrote in 2020 in August that year that Democrats introduced a bill to block manufacturers' limits on medical devices. Letitia Reynolds told the New York Times how as a medical equipment technician at Memorial Hospital in Colorado Springs, she was desperate to get her hands on new ventilators during the shortage. Yet even the most basic routine maintenance Reynolds was not allowed to do herself. She was 100% dependent on the manufacturer, which could mean a delay in repairs. Every delay means that there's more time that a ventilator is out of service for a patient that could need it, especially during the pandemic. Advocates for the movement also didn't just cite the expense and frustration we've already discussed, but the environmental factors as well. The article explains that 83% of iPhone's heat trapping emissions come from mining and manufacturing. The less pollutants we create, the better. A single iPhone's manufacturing might not make much of a difference, but if we all change the way we see things and try to repair and reuse instead of just buying something new, then it could be meaningful. So if it is the right to repair and it's so obvious and necessary, then why haven't we done it already? It kind of seems like a no-brainer. Well, unfortunately, and probably unsurprisingly, the answer is money. Apple is going to make more money if you buy more phones instead of just paying a technician to fix the one you have. Unfortunately, while it is possible to repair a laptop for a fraction of what Apple would charge at an independent shop, as we saw with the Wall Street Journal article, and Apple doesn't seem to want this to even happen in the first place. Glenn O'Donnell, researcher director at Forrester told MarketWatch, if you can go out and buy a flat screen for $200, when it breaks, you just throw it away because it'll cost you several hundred just to fix it, even if you can find anyone who can do it, O'Donnell said. In the case of a car, however, most repairs are going to cost much less than the cost of replacing the car, he said. Consumer electronics is not in that situation. We've gotten the process to a point where it's so cheap to make them that you just throw them away. Plus, there aren't a lot of replaceable parts in them anyway. It's right to repair is a noble idea, but one that has significant limitations. While there are definitely items that are too difficult for repair shops to fix, such as fried CPUs or televisions, it does seem like smartphones, laptops, machinery, and ventilators could all benefit from these new bills. 
It's a complex issue, especially when it comes to copyright, and there's no denying that. But if it's sustainable, researched, and overwhelmingly approved by voters, then it seems like it's worth ironing out these kinds of complications. On the other hand, critics such as Vice President of NetChoice, Carl Zabo, say the right to repair will effectively void warranties anyway. He used the example of going to a repair shop to get your screen fixed. If you did that and then a week later, the device started glitching, the phone company may be less inclined to actually cover your phone under its warranty if you went elsewhere to fix it. Aside from these reasons, manufacturers also claim their opposition is for our own good. It's unsafe and unreliable for someone that isn't trained to make these repairs. Apple COO Jeff Williams said in a release that when a repair is needed, a customer should have the confidence the repair is done right. After all, we don't want a phone, ventilator, or combine harvester repaired improperly. That could be dangerous, right? Yet another New York Times article said that manufacturers brought up the dangers as well as the idea of a lack of security. One Apple lobbyist told a Nebraska Senator that the state would become a hotspot for bad actors if right to repair laws were passed. An unauthorized repair person would have access to someone's technical information and intellectual property, posing an entirely new set of risk. This might sound a bit worrying in theory, but it seems like manufacturers such as Apple are blowing this out of proportion. A May 2021 report from the FTC found that this reasoning was flawed without much to back it up. They specifically said there is scant evidence to support manufacturers' justifications for repair restrictions. Copyright and a manufacturer's intellectual property rights are still a legitimate concern in this conversation, and John Deere doesn't want their software stolen, for example. But the idea of bad actors flooding the repair market doesn't seem to be all that realistic either. Kyle Wine, CEO of iFixit, which sells repair tools, has described how the FTC might approach the right to repair in a simple matter, and he stated, The eyeglass rule says, if you can go to the optometrist, they have to give you your prescription. When you walk out the door, they can't force you to buy glasses. You can imagine they, FTC, could easily say, hey, if you're going to make special software available for your manufacturer repair shops, you should make those available to consumers. At the time of this article, Massachusetts is the only state that has a right to repair law on the books. Their laws are focused on cars, but other right to repair bills for electronics, phones, and computers is being considered. However, 34 different states as of writing this are working on similar legislation. Still, this fight seems very far from over. Recently, in December, 2021, just a couple months ago, Global Circulate reported that Apple might kill off their older phone models. A leaked report said that they were going to effectively shut down their iPhone 6 and other vintage or obsolete models. The iPhone 6 is reportedly safe until 2023, but once these products shift to these vintage lists, it becomes much harder to get spare parts and repairs. According to the article, the vintage period lasts for two years before it's declared obsolete. There's also the matter of this leaving iPhone 6 users vulnerable to being hacked, missing out on new features and other updates. Still, the right to repair laws do seem to be getting closer and a greater possibility among many states. I'm curious to see what this will mean for tech manufacturers. Will they start caring more about the products and that they will last and potentially charging more for durability, knowing that they may have less funds coming in for repairs? Does this mean that planned obsolescence will maybe lessen? Or will they try to compete with future repair shops? How long will it take for this legislation to even pass in the first place? These are all questions I don't have the answer to, but these are questions that I hope will be answered very soon in the coming years. But with all of that being said, that is where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you enjoyed it, and I do hope that you learned something new today. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. 
I appreciate you spending some of your time here with me today. And again, I hope it was useful. I hope you learned something interesting. It's something that I think about probably a little too much about planned obsolescence, but it's so fascinating yet so flawed at the same time in my eyes. So anyway, let me know what you think about it and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.